Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. My guest today is helping communities build libraries. After working in roles in public libraries, Catherine Bellamy offers consultations for libraries, archives, information centers, and schools on knowledge organization, outreach services, event planning, community engagement, and collection management through her business, Redbird Library Consulting Services. One of her current projects is helping to build an indigenous elementary school. Catherine, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Oh, thank you so much, Lorraine. It's so great to be a guest on the podcast today. It's my first one, so I'm excited. Yay! <laughs> cool, welcome. Thank so you. I'm interested to know why you started your consulting business and what kind of projects you take on. Um, I started consulting because I think like every librarian, I just have all of this knowledge. Um, I worked about five years collectively in public libraries and uh, mostly as an outreach librarian. My specialty was community engagement, taking the libraries out to the community, gathering where people or going where people gathered, um, you know, determining what the barriers are to access um, resources in and outside uh, the, of the library. And over time, I've, I've built this wealth of knowledge, I feel like. And so now, you know, I, I decided to strike out on my own. Um, one of my other passions is learning about Indigenous knowledge organization. Um, I, I got my master's in library and information studies at the University of British Columbia. And so I did a concentration in First Nation curriculum, which is basically learning about First Nations, Indigenous information centers, knowledge organizations, um, things like that. And I did my professional experience at, um, at Celtic Territory, their education uh, resource center. And I worked with the amazing and magnificent Kim Lawson, who is a Celtic librarian at UBC where I graduated. And I learned so much from her in such a short amount of time about an indigenous classification system, subject headings, organization. And, um, you know, honestly, it's been eight years later and I'm still learning. Um, mm -hmm. I, learning from other people, like reading. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn and I follow a lot of indigenous librarians there and I'm just so interested um, about this. And so I started my consultation um, business and I'm also helping to build a library at an Indigenous school, and um, it's been a community effort. Um, and, you know, we have the language and culture teacher, we have the elder in residence, um, the principal, all of the teachers. It's really community effort, and sometimes I feel like I'm learning more than I'm actually doing, which I think is the way to go. Um, I agree. And, yeah, I'm learning the language and the culture. Um, I'm very privileged to do that um, in order to make the library more inclusive and to use a classification system called Brian Deere. It's a Brian Deere classification system. It was created by a Mohawk librarian back in the 1970s. And he saw Dewey Decimal as um, having some racial bias, having, you know, Dewey Decimal, let me back up. The classification systems in general are, are basically indicative, reflective of one's worldview, and Dewey Decimal separates each category from each other and into classes. And so Dewey or Brian Deer is more of a circular, interrelated, interdependent 
sort of classification system. Each class sort of informs each other, um, which is very reflective of in indigenous worldviews as, as I've experienced it. So it was great to be able to work with the Brian Deere system um, using Library of Congress and First Nations House of Learning subject headings, as well as Homosaurus, which I just found out last summer. Um, amazing resource. And um, yeah, it's, you know, I think I got into consulting because I can do with what I know, but I'm also learning on the job as well. Um, so I hope each of my contracts in the future allows me the opportunity to learn and grow. We're lifelong learners, aren't we? Yes, we are. It never stops. <laughs> never. How do you find your clients and who's your target market? Um, to be honest, this is my first um, client. Um, nice. Good one yeah. to get on your first one. I know. Um, and actually starting my consultation business was quite an accident. So when I started at the school, um, I was offered a contract. And so, you know, I do my thing and then I'm like, oh, this is like consultation. I'm consulting. I'm actually, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is what I'm doing. And I'm like, oh, I should just make a business out of this. <laughs> um, so this, this contract is full-time right now. So I don't have a lot of room for other contracts. There is another project that in the making, um, but I can't say too much about it right now. I'm not trying to be coy. It's just, I don't know where it's going <laughs> and I don't want to put any false information out there. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I have the one contract. Um, I don't know where the future is going to take me. Honestly, I don't plan too far ahead, even though I should probably do that. But um, whenever this one ends, I'm going to trust that another one will come up or, or other things will come up. And I've, been making lots of great contacts off of LinkedIn, amazingly enough. Um, I've been invited to do interviews and, and talk with um, people about knowledge organization and, um, you know, the library that I'm building at the school with the help of the other employees. Um, so I'm hoping that that will lead to something eventually. Nice. Yeah. So you've mentioned this a little bit, but tell us more about your work involving Indigenous information knowledge and how your school building project is going. Sure. So I just want to say, I just want to preface it with, um, it's my own experience, um, my limited experience. And so I don't, I don't want anyone to think that this is a universal or general experience. It's just it's mm -hmm. my own. Um, so... First of all, I think I mentioned Brian Deere. I've always wanted to use Brian Deere and uh, I have a background in public libraries and I was always trying to get them to kind of go towards Brian Deere, but you know, that's time and money and labor that public libraries don't necessarily have um, because they have to prioritize their strategic goals. But, um, you know, when I got to the school and saw, oh, oh, there's a chance to, you know, use a classification system, there's a chance to, to catalog the books there. There are so many wonderful books. Um, a lot of what goes on at the school is land-based learning, meaning the children are learning their language and their culture alongside the provincial curriculum. And it's oftentimes on the land. They're learning how to take care of the land. They're learning from the land. They're learning with the land. 
And so a lot of the books in the collection reflect that kind of learning. It's um, books about animals, books about plants and trees and, and whatnot. And, you know, when I walked in, saw all of these wonderful books, so many books by indigenous authors, publishers, illustrators, um, I wanted to try and take care of these in the best way possible. And of course, being you know, I'm from European descent. I'm Appalachian from Kentucky. Um, I'm, I moved to the Vancouver area almost nine years ago, as of January 2024. And um, I don't have the experience or knowledge. So it, it depended a lot on um, conversations with the language and cultural teacher, the elder in residence, the, the staff. Um, it was a lot of learning. It wasn't just going in and just doing. It wasn't the first moment I walked in, I'm making decisions. Um, I have found my experience in Indigenous communities that it's very relationship-based. So you form the relationships first. You talk, you get to know one another, and it becomes a reciprocal relationship. And I think it harkens back to what I said earlier about I feel like I'm I'm learning more, I'm receiving more than I'm giving. And I hope that's not the case, but um, I've been truly blessed and I'm truly fortunate with how much I've learned and how much has been shared with me. And it really touches my heart and has allowed me to move forward in a good way to um, implement Brian Deere, um, tailoring it to the needs of the community in which I'm working. Um, using the subject headings. Um, one of my longstanding issues um, were a lot of books, particularly by Roy Henry Vickers, beautiful books that tell of origin stories, legends, and they're uh, cataloged in the 398s, which is um, folklore, um, fairy mm -hmm. tales, and things like that, which they're sort of highly offensive um, because they're not folk tales or, or fairy tales. They're their geography, their history, their language, culture, their spirituality, their their land, their natural history. Um, and I could go on with that. And you know, in Dewey Decimal, there's not really a good place to put them because it was offered to put them in the spirituality section, but then you're kind of ignoring and negating, like it's also geography, it's also um, culture, it's also biographies. And, you know, for years when I worked in public libraries, I was like, where do these actually go? So when I started rolling out uh, Brian Deere, I was looking down, um, you know, the classification list um, and it, the A's are for reference any reference book will go into A's. So I look under the A's and I'm like, okay, reference materials, <gasps> legends and storytelling. What? Like this mystery <laughs> has been solved after about five <laughs> or six years of wondering where to put them. And I'm like, of course, of course, these are reference books. Um, so that was, that was a delight. That was a delight in, in this particular um, job that I've been undertaking. And I shared it with, with my colleagues, I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, this is going under reference under language and storytelling. They were like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> yes, of course you're reference, Catherine. <laughs> but I, I felt so proud. Um, yeah, so it's, I think that's what pulls me towards consulting as well because 
you have that freedom to explore, you have that freedom to learn, and you have the freedom to choose your clients um, mm-hmm. and choose the work. I mean, mm-hmm. I say that with a little bit of privilege. You know, oftentimes people do take things because they need to eat. They need to pay rent. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been fortunate in that um, we found each other. The school and I found each other. And I'm, I'm just so happy to be able to learn and work with them. Another thing that we're doing too. So when I was at my pre- a previous place of employment, uh, we had gotten Dash and Dot Robots. And um, coding always terrified me because I'm not necessarily a technologically savvy person. Um, So we bought some Dash robots at the school. And so we have been using them not only to teach code, but to teach language and culture. So I do the Dash robot part and then the elder in residence and the um, language and culture teacher, um, they do the language and culture part. We also have a Cubeto robot that comes with a little map that you move him along. Um, and so we have incorporated like, uh, legends and things like that into the map. So the students, um, we tell a story. And so the students have to move the robot to the point on the map that cor- corresponds with that story. So it's been just, you know, I never foresaw that particular thing, but it came up and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. We can just like collectively think about this. And, you know, they're learning all sorts of different skills to along with that. It's been it's been great. It all sounds so fascinating. You yeah. are literally learning new things every day. So interesting. Absolutely, yeah. So when you work for yourself, it can be hard to turn off your day job. How do you manage a reasonable work life balance? Oh <laughs> like I feel like I should have all these wise things to say, but I I don't. I still struggle with that. Um, I am a person that is neurodivergent um, in my work. I tend to hyperfocus and hyperfixate and ruminate on things. It is very hard for me just to flip the switch. Um, just because I walk out the door doesn't mean I'm always not thinking of my job. And in previous jobs, um, I would just think, like my mind goes just a mile a minute. I'm always looking for stimuli because that's just the way my mind works. And so I noticed in previous jobs, I would come home and just thinking like, oh, we could have done this, we could have done that, I could have done that better. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is not the healthy way to be. Um, and so I had to figure out how can I stop that? It's not easy. It's not easy enough just mm-hmm. to say, oh, I'm just not going to think about that. Um, so I have a couple of special interests that I will drop anything for. And um one of my special interests is anything paranormal, supernatural, occult studies. Yeah, I love it. Like, if I weren't like a consultant or, you know, public librarian, um, I would love to work at some metaphysical library somewhere and just like solve mysteries. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You have time. Yeah, I do. I do. And there's a metaphysical library in Ashland, Oregon, I think. And I'm I might there look it up one day, <laughs> but um, so when I when I th- am, am on this loop of like, oh, there's this I need to do, there's that I need to do, then I'm like, okay, obviously I need to do something different. I need a shift. So I will um, turn on a, one of my favorite podcasts that tells really, really creepy, dark stories <laughs> about hauntings. Um, <laughs> Some of my favorite TV shows, I mean, Supernatural, Naturally, um, 
anything with Josh Gates, um, you know, ghost hunters, I will turn it on and I can just feel my body kind of relax. I can feel wow. my mind. Yeah, I can feel my mind just start to relax too. So um, yeah, I think work-life balance is very hard. You know, you're not going to have the mm-hmm. same balance every single day, depending on what happens in your day. Um, what's important is just kind of to listen to your body and recognize when you need rest, mm-hmm. um, take that day off. If you need to reach out to a therapist, if you need to, cause I do, I have a therapist on speed dial. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a lot of, um, different things. I try somatic things to try to shift into like, okay, it's home time now. Let's do home time things. Um, so it's hard. I, I, I can't say I've perfected it. It depends. It really depends. (laughs) Well, that kind of leads me to my next, my next topic. I found you on LinkedIn because your passions for well-being of library staff and helping library staff have sustainable careers line up with my own interests in those things. I would love to hear your insights on these topics. A lot of librarians have thanked me for being so open about the terrible experiences I have had in libraries. People don't always want to talk about it publicly, about their experience for many reasons, but I feel like if we can, we should. Librarians need to know that they are not alone if they're experiencing trauma or abuse at work. So whatever you're comfortable with sharing, why do you have this interest in the well-being of library staff? I think first and foremost, it just seems like the world is on fire. Um, globally, mm-hmm. locally, um, it just seems like it's it's a time that's so draining. And just, you know, I think all of us just, we're just tired. The pandemic did us no favors. There's a lot of changes going on in the world. Many things out of our control. Um, and so first and foremost, we need to take care of ourselves. And that's mm-hmm. hard when you're in a profession in which you're expected to care so much. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not in the job description to care, but I think a lot of us are pulled to working in libraries because we care about our communities. We care about each other. We care about patrons. We care about access to information and keeping it equitable and inclusive. And we just care about a lot of social justice issues, which pull us to libraries naturally. Um, you know, I earlier this year, um, I dealt with a really terrible situation in libraries where um, I was assaulted by a patron. And uh, basically the patron charged at me as I thought he was leaving. He turned around, just ran at me and stopped within like an inch of my face and screamed. And then um, he tried to disconnect my phone as I was calling 911. And um, that just impressed upon me the sometimes volatile nature of our jobs and sometimes the unsafe nature of our jobs. And the response um, to those incidents, um, I didn't feel that they were necessarily quick enough, nor Mm -hmm. was the response enough. I won't really go into detail on that, but it was a very triggering time for me. 
Um, and I, I knew when everything was happening, because I am trauma informed, I knew when everything was happening, like the heart rates going up, okay, I'm triggered. I was ruminating in my head, where are the exits? Where can we safely get out? Um, my first concern was protecting my staff. I was the only librarian on staff that day and there were three other staff members um, there with me. And I wanted to protect them because they, one of them had been through a previous traumatic incident at that same library branch only about four or five months before. And um, yeah, and it, there was an incident the previous night that I ended up calling 911 for, and then the police never showed up. And so that night- Oh my gosh. When, yeah, so that night when that happened, I was also like, what happens if they don't show up again? And they were like five minutes down the road, like not driving, walking, but um, you know, there were so many things going through my mind that night. Um, and uh, after after everything was over, I get a call from a higher up and basically um, if they said, I'm sorry, I, I don't remember it. Unfortunately, my mind is a little bit of a patchwork because I was coming down at that point um, and I was trying to do anything just to stop my heart rate from being so high and I was shaking. It was all coming out of my body. Like the adrenaline was just a wash over me. And they had asked me, well, what would you have done? Like, what, what would you do to solve this? And so I made my recommendations and, um, you know, there were a couple of recommendations that were followed through, but not, not to the point where I was like, okay, this is good. It was kind of minimal. I felt, and I, I didn't feel like it was a good inclusive response to, um, what I had just been through. Like, I, I was just shocked. Um, and then I, the next day I called in cause I just, I was sort of terrified. I did not sleep that night cause my, the adrenaline mm -hmm. was still going through. Um, my shift ended at nine o'clock that night. So I had to walk home in the dark and, uh, it was a terrifying, it was a terrifying, uh, commute home and, uh, no one should have to go through that. So I called the next day. I ended up being off for the next four months on uh, stress oh, wow. leave. Yeah, I got a medical note from my doctor. Um, the the two patrons, there was actually two incidents that day. One patron, the incident happened when I was out at a meeting with a community partner. Um, he had been a longstanding, um, uh, a longstanding issue, we'll say. And it just kind of escalated. And uh, then the next, the other incident was, of course, with me. And so I was like, I don't, I don't want to deal with that again. I don't have the strength. I don't, I can't, I can't deal with it. I was freaking out for at least a week. It took me at least mm -hmm. a week for me to come down. And I mm -hmm. employed every single tactic. Like I was using somatic <laughs> therapies um, and whatnot. And I, it still took me a week. Um, so those, those two patrons came back. And uh, there were more incidents. And uh, finally, the two patrons were banned for a month. And One whole month. A whole month. I don't know what happened after that. I just know um, there were some other steps that were 
that were being followed. I just didn't think it was enough. I did not feel it was enough. It could be, I will be very honest. It could have been because I was traumatized. And, you know, when you're traumatized, you don't feel safe. Your safety and your security is broken. Your body mm -hmm. is an alarm going off anytime it perceives a threat. And either it could be an actual threat or it can be just something it just perceives as a threat for some reason. And you don't really know why. Um, so I'll give it that. But um, during that whole time, that whole four months, I was off. The only person, the only higher up that contacted me was in HR because I needed to fill out some medical forms. Um and talk about payment and whatever, but I didn't hear from any other wow. higher up at all. And, um, which was quite a different experience from another place I had worked previously, um, with where I had felt supported. Um, it was, you know, an incident would happen and I've been through many incidents. Um, you know, I worked Saturdays and so in a very busy branch on Saturdays, sometimes I was writing, three, four or five incident reports. And oh, wow. yeah, so I'm not, it wasn't like it was my first incident. It wasn't mm -hmm. even the worst incident I've ever been a part of, to be honest. But at the other place, you know, I had my managers wrapping around me. I had the health and safety committee wrapping around me. I, you know, there was always somebody there to, um, to liaise with and they were asking okay what what do you recommend and like they meant it they meant it if we could do that they they would they would try to do it and I felt comfortable with that and I felt secure um at the place where this last incident took place earlier this year I didn't feel wrapped around um yeah it it really broke my trust um mm -hmm. so there was a there was a point in May where um you know, I had, you know, I was working at the school as a volunteer um, because of my contacts at the school and doing library stuff. And this is before I got the contract. I was just kind of volunteering. And um, I had to make a decision, you know, because my my leave was about to be up and I didn't have any more leave because I'd only been at this place for a few months, um, the place where I was traumatized. I mean, um, so I didn't have access to long term leave unfortunately. And uh, I had to make a decision. Am I going to go back or am I going to do something different? And so I chose not to go back. Um, not enough things had changed for me to feel safe and to feel confident that people were taking my safety seriously. And you know, early on when I started at this place of employment, um, we had received uh, safety training from an outside group, it was a third party. And one of the things they told us was, you know, no one is gonna care as much about your safety as you. And mm -hmm. I was like, like on one hand, yes, that's <laughs> quite true because I've been trying to stay alive for the past almost 42 years. But on the other hand, like, I do really want my workplace to, you know, want to keep me safe too, because, you know, if anything happens, that's downtime, that's money lost, that's labor lost, that's reputation lost, you know? Um, so that, that really hit it home. And yeah, yeah. So that's, that's part of why I'm so passionate about um, everybody 
in the library being trauma-informed. You know, I often say that you know, libraries have become a community hub anymore. We're no longer a, a mm -hmm. repository for books. We're no longer just a computer lab. We're, we're a safe place for everybody to gather in the community. Um, whoever you are, no matter who you are, you can come to the library and just exist. Just exist judgment-free. And, you know, you have free programs, free resources. Um, it's connection. It's belonging. And those are beautiful, wonderful things. But as a librarian with a master's a, in library and information studies, I'm not a crisis interventionalist. I'm not mm -hmm. a social worker. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a behavioral specialist. Um, I wish I was. And, you know, some, li some library staff are because that's what they did mm -hmm. in their career or their bachelor's. And that's, you know, that's wonderful too, but I'm not. A lot of my colleagues aren't. And so oftentimes people have needs that come into the library that, you know, I can't meet because I'm not any of those things. Um, and the library's evolving and it should. I think that's how we mm -hmm. stay alive. And I think I even put it on LinkedIn, like the public libraries are our ultimate shapeshifters. They pivot and change mm -hmm. um, to meet the needs of their dynamic communities. And they collect data and chase trends and set trends and transform to be what is needed in any given moment. But at the same time, has the education and training we received to be library staff, whether librarian or library technician or circulation staff, customer services staff, has that evolved and changed to address these new topics and issues that we're dealing with right now? Um, I can only speak to my program. My program did not, did not uh, prepare me quite for this. Um, so I don't know if anyone else has. So if you have listeners out there that are like, yes, we had a whole course. Um, I would love to hear about that. Like, please mm -hmm. message me. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I don't think that that libraries themselves have caught up to these, these things. And, you know, it, libraries are complex institutions. There are many reasons why things get done and don't get done. And Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's capacity, sometimes it's staff. You know, libraries are trying to do a lot with very little, mm -hmm. which opens doors to burnout and compassion fatigue and trauma in, in libraries. But, um, you know, we're, we're really faced with low morale and burnout. Like most of my friends that are librarians and library staff in general are burnt out. Um, it, it can be a hard job and there needs to be more supports. I, I, my wish is for an onboarding requirement to be that you have to take trauma-informed training to work in a library just because of the nature of it these days. And that's, that's how we keep ourselves safe. That's how we keep mm -hmm. the community safe as well. I'm really sorry that you've had those experiences and I'm sure it was hard to relay them, but thank you for doing that because you're going to help a lot of people who are going through or have been through those same things to know that they're not the only ones who've had that experience and didn't get support from their leadership. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you for that. 
So changing gears a little bit, um, our other passion that we have is career sustainability. So I moderate the Career Sustainability for Librarians group on LinkedIn. So send me a request so you can get in on our conversations. Or, or you can go to the LinkedIn group and request to join and I will let you in. Plus, I have this podcast where we talk about, you know, other things we can do with our careers with our library skills. Um, and I've received really great feedback from listeners that the Librarian Linkovers helped librarians reframe their skills to move up in their libraries or just validate the value they bring because they want to stay in their library or they find jobs outside of libraries. And I love this feedback because the goal of my podcast is to boost the value of our skills. So how do you go about helping librarians create and maintain sustainable careers? Oh, um, I think my number one thing that I say to people is just fail. Just fail. Mm just go out there and try something and fail. And I know that's a very privileged take because not everyone can afford to fail. And, um, you know, you fail, you don't eat, you don't pay rent, you don't get the job, mm -hmm. you know, etc. but if you can, if you're able to, don't be afraid of doing something different. Um, for example, I always stayed away from the dash and dot robots because coding just terrified me, honestly. Um, Technology kind of terrifies me, honestly, but in this current contract that I have, um, I'm basically like the go-to, like anytime anyone needs a cool. PowerPoint done, yeah, anytime anyone doesn't understand why their computer com computer is doing what it does, they always come <laughs> to me and I kind of figure it out. You know, we've implemented the Dash robots into teaching as well. Um, so don't be afraid. And, you know, even if you try something, it doesn't mean you're going to be good at it and don't try things that you think you're going to be good at. And I say these things, they seem like very simple, um, inconsequential things, but through doing these things, you find out number one, how resilient you are. And number two, it gets the brain going. So maybe, so maybe you <laughs> are good at this thing. So maybe you're good at this thing that's adjacent to it. And in the meantime, maybe you're networking because I will, I will say that networking is probably one of the number one ways of getting either into the library world or into the library adjacent world. Um, and mm -hmm. I always tell people, I have a lot of friends too, that are thinking about leaving public libraries and other libraries that they're working at, um, just because they want to, or they're looking for something new or whatever. And, you know, they're looking for library adjacent things like, um, archives or even mm -hmm. vendors mm -hmm. are like really great and they always like to tap um, library resources because it gives them kind of an in about what libraries are looking for but also don't be afraid to just go anywhere not related to libraries whatsoever because there's all of these so-called soft skills and I don't think they're soft skills I think they're very critical mm -hmm. very I agree critical that's, a, that's the wrong terminology yeah. And unfortunately, like when you work in a public library, like we had to fill out everything that we've done for the year, just because we had to prevent, we had to present it to upper management. We had to present it to the board. Like, what are we doing in communities? Like what, what are the programming things that we're doing? And it informed everything else that we were doing, but there was no room to put these critical skills that they call soft skills. Like 
yes, I did this one story time for 30 minutes or an hour, but I collectively spent five hours problem solving that day because of mm-hmm. everything that had happened, but there's no room to put those anywhere. They're not mm-hmm. measurable. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's another thing too. Don't just look at like the programming that you did. Don't just look at the outreach events that you did or coordinated. Think of all those times that you applied problem solving skills or critical thinking skills. You know, librarians typically are organizers. Like mm-hmm. we know how to organize everything in many different <laughs> ways. And, and so just get out of our way so we can organize, right? Yes, yes. And so many companies are looking for things like that document retrieval, um, document management. And I know there are probably some certifications and courses that you have to take for that, but oftentimes a librarian degree will cover that. Um, because I mean, I took a class in my librarian degree about records management, um, anything to do with that. And it's also a great way to hone technology skills. Cause I think every librarian, whether they're like me and terrified of it, or they're just tech savvy, we all have some sort of technology skills. And that mm-hmm. is very helpful when you're working at a place that maybe works the population that doesn't necessarily have those skills, like a senior center, you know, you're going to wow everybody when you go to the senior center and you're <laughs> doing things with the iPad and you're doing all these technological things. Like they love it. Um, don't be afraid to look at non-traditional routes mm-hmm. and also reach out to people to help with resume or to talk you into applying it. Cause it's very easy to talk yourself out of it. Um, but get some cheerleaders on your side. Like it, mm-hmm. it helps. It helps a lot. I love the part about fail because anytime you say, oh, I tried this and it didn't work, there will always be someone that said, so did I. I also tried it and it didn't work. I mean, everything is you try it and if it doesn't work, then you just figure something else out. You're not a failure. It just didn't work. Who cares? Figure out a better way or figure out a different way. So yeah, you can't be afraid that everything has to work perfectly every time you do something because that's not going to happen. Yeah. Failure, failure is really just a teaching. It's, it's a teaching and it's not Mm -hmm. a bad teaching. Sometimes you fail because that's just not your path. It's not aligning Mm -hmm. for you. There's something like, honestly, there is something better out there. And I Mm -hmm. know, you know, there's a lot of worry because inflation, like unemployment and, you know, there's a lot of worry about getting jobs and where am I going to work and what am I going to do? There is a lot of worry. Um, mm-hmm. you know, find, find somebody to talk to. Um, you can either talk to like a therapist or just find somebody that has been through it because, you know, we can hype each other up and tell you it's not going to last forever. It's, mm-hmm. it's very much mm-hmm. okay. So many librarians are interested in the idea of going into business for themselves. So what suggestions can you give librarians who may want to do consulting work? You kind of fell into yours and now you like it. You realize you're doing consulting, but what, what suggestions can you give for people who, for librarians who may want to do that? You know, I want to go, I want to go back to my graduate program. So right when I graduated um, with my MLIS, I always swore I would never work in a public library. I will never (laughs) work in a public library. A month after I graduated, I ended up working in a public library. And, (laughs) And 
And while I was at the public library, I swore I would never be a children's librarian. You cannot make me be a children's librarian. And so all I've really done the last seven years, eight years is be a children's librarian. <laughs> but and I that works. Right. And I think, I think the moral of this story is don't discount anything. And you're going to find things that you just don't align with. You're going to find things that you're like, I just, I can't do it either because it's just not fitting with the way you think or the way you work. Um, my thing has always just been to reach out and try several different things at the same time so that you always have something to fall back on and never give up hope if you find yourself in a job that you're just not that you're just not digging you're, you're just, mm -hmm. you just have it because you need to eat basically you need to pay mm -hmm. rent um never think that something else better will never come along because it will it it will it just takes a long time and it just and it also depends on where you live it depends on mm -hmm. a lot of things and I think maybe I'm overgeneralizing a little bit but um I have been through ups and downs in my life and I've always when I've been at the very lowest I've always felt it would never get better but it did and sometimes it took a long time and so when you're going into business for yourself my biggest, my biggest piece of advice, always believe in yourself. Even when you don't think anyone else does, even when you think your friends might be rolling their eyes at you, or, you know, you feel like you're not being um, taken seriously, they don't matter. <laughs> they just, they don't. And if your friends are rolling their eyes at you, you just calm out on them. Anyways, mm -hmm. believe in yourself. Because statistically, I shouldn't even be in Vancouver. I'm from a very small town in Eastern Kentucky where everyone knows each other, where we all stay near our families. Um, I grew up in poverty um, and I've had certain privileges in my life that have allowed me to get out. Um, but still statistically coming from that impoverished background, I shouldn't be here. Um, and I don't mean like here in the world, I just mean here, like in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, things worked out. Um, people believed in me, but most of all, I believed in myself and I fought to get here. And um, I, I do want to say too, if you want to go into business for yourself, don't quit your job yet, but try to do the business as sort of a side hustle until, until you get enough work to where you can live on it and not struggle. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. Um, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but um, what professional associations have you joined or which ones have you gotten the best out of? We were kind of talking about conference and that kind of thing. Right. Um, I've never been, I've never been much of a joiner. Um, and that's good and bad. Like I have friends that go to every ALA conference that go to every BCLA conference, which is the British Columbia Library Association conference um, and other conferences as well. I, I think I've always shied away because I don't much like crowds. I think that's part of one of the reasons I, I feel like I'm neurodivergent. It's very, there's a lot of stimulus or stimuli, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people everywhere and it's just, it's very overwhelming. But um, 
one organization that I have joined um, was the American Indian Library Association because of my passion with indigenous knowledge organizations and um, and whatnot. And I'm on their listserv and I learn so much stuff just from being on the listserv. I've gone to, I think, one meeting and got to talk with Cindy Hole, who um, is now, I can't remember, I can't remember her position at ALA now, um, but she, I think, was the president at ALA, is what we called it at the time, and got to meet some other people and talk about what I was doing. Um, so I've gotten a lot out of it um, in the emails, you know, Dr. Sandy Littletree, which has inspired my work so much. Um, she is Eastern Shoshone, I think, in Navajo. She writes on indigenous knowledge organizations and libraries, tribal libraries, um, just a plethora of knowledge. Um, just like, my goodness, I'm just proclaimed even thinking about <laughs> all the stuff that she's written. Debbie Reese who has um, a blog dedicated to the representation of indigenous peoples in children's literature, which I have found so amazing. Um, when I worked in public libraries, I would use her blog when I would weed the collection because I would look at the books. If they had negative representations, um, I, would, I would take it out of the collection. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so she gives great guidance um, about books, like she'll take books and just write her thoughts on it and, and whatnot. So it was very informative. Um, and so they they tend to post on the listserv um, somewhat. And um, just seeing all of these amazing conversations going on too, and just being an observer and learning through that way, really love that. Um, I have been toying with maybe joining ALA. Um, just because I want to support it. I mean, ALA supports right. us and, you know, furthers the cause of libraries and, um, you know, they lead the battle cry, I guess you could say. And I've been toying with it and, and we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> well, keep us posted on that. So why did you go to library school? And based on your career so far, does that reasoning still hold? I went to library school because uh, I graduated in my early 30s, actually, with a degree in English literature. And I was an administrative assistant at the time. I'd been one for, I think, the past five or six years. So that was kind of like my first career. And it wasn't really aligned with me. Like, I went, I got my check. I did my best job, my best work, but it wasn't, it wasn't lighting up my soul, we'll say. Um, and so when I got my English Lit degree, I realized like I, I'm not really gonna be eligible for anything else. Like where I was at the time, I was in Kentucky at the time. Um, you know, I wanted to make more money. I wanted to have a job that aligned with my soul. I, I just thought I had a lot to give and I didn't really have any designs on what I wanted to do. Um, and so I just thought, oh, English Lit degree, I would just go be a librarian because at the time, <laughs> At the time, I I just thought, oh, I'll just, you know, check books out all day, which I think is what a lot of people think we do. We mm -hmm. just deal with books and, you know, sometimes, but there's a lot more to it that I didn't know. And I was just like, all right, then I'm just going to go be a librarian. So at work at my administrative assistant job, 
I remember it was one afternoon and I think April and I was like I'm just gonna look up library schools I've already got my work done because I work pretty quickly so I just started looking up library schools and I looked up the University of Washington in Seattle and uh they had a library school, but it did not have um, a spring intake. And so I was like, well, I'm graduating in December and preferably I'd like to be off to library school right after I graduate. So then I was like, oh, I wonder if Canada would take me. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked up, um, I looked up uh, universities in Vancouver, found University of British Columbia. Yes, they do have a library school. They did have a spring intake. And I'm like, great. And I've had people ask me, well, what's a girl from Kentucky doing in Vancouver? How'd you even find this? Why'd you even want to come here? And I was like, you know, at that point, the furthest west I had ever been was Iowa. And I thought that was sad. I should go even more west. So I was like, let's just <laughs> go all the way to the ocean. Um, so I <laughs> I applied to Vancouver and quite interestingly enough, the applications were due that day. That I was oh my gosh. At library school. <laughs> yes. That's how I roll. But um, that's also how most of my homework got done too. But um, so I, I sent in the application. I worked probably about three hours on it at work, but I had already finished my other work. So it was fine. Right. But anyways, um, so I worked on my application. Luckily, I had an additional two weeks to get additional documents like transcripts and references in. So that worked out fine. I ended up getting accepted and just prepared until January when I left to come here to go to library school. Um, I'm glad I went. I, I, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd make the same decision to go to library school. Um, no regrets there. And I think it's informed my career. Like, honestly, the first job I got out of library school at the public library, it was the first time in my life where I felt like people looked at me like I had something to give that was worthwhile. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, it was the first time I felt involved in decision-making in it was the first time I felt like people listened to me and my opinions and acted on them. And it was the first time I had colleagues that had seen me as an equal. And like, I'm going to cry here in a minute, but um, yes, it was, it was, I was very much aligned. And because I know, even though I did not want to work in public libraries and I had made <laughs> that very clear here, um, it was a necessary step. I learned so much from public libraries that I am able to utilize in the contract job I'm doing now. And I also learned a lot about myself. I learned how to be resilient, decision-making, problem-solving, critical thinking skills within a library world. And that, that has made all the difference in moving forward into other career paths. That's awesome. I'm so glad you went to library school. Me too. <laughs> so where can people find your business? Where can your next great contract find you? If they want to hire you to do a project. Um, you can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm there. She's probably. very good on LinkedIn. I will put in a plug for that. She's very good. That's how I found her. She's good. Oh, thank you. You're making me blush. They can't see it, but you're making me blush. But yeah, I'm usually on LinkedIn um, every day. I just shoot me a DM. Um, 
send me, um, well, it's not friend request on LinkedIn, like a connection request, I guess it is. Um, I'm always looking for people to learn from and follow from too. Um, I like for things to be reciprocal. Like not only do I want to provide information and services, but I also like to learn as well. And so I'm always open to chatting and having a conversation and um, just learning about more of the world, learning about other people's experiences and, and how that shapes the library world as well. Great. Well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I've learned a ton about Indigenous information. Thank you. It's yeah, great. I I love it so much. I think one of the turning points for me too is when I was at the public library, I attended a webinar by um, author and professor Daniel Heath Justice, who is Cherokee. He is a professor at um, University of British Columbia, and it was called um, something about decolonial literatures. And I can't remember the exact title, but he has also written a book called Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. And so when we think about literature, we tend to think about print, like books, mm -hmm. um, things like that. You know, and we started to think electronically, digitally, like e-books, e-audio books, of, you know, considering that literature. And the Western world in the last maybe 20 to 30 years have, you know, accepted oh, oral literature. Yes, that's a literature too. We're kind of behind on that, but um, we started accepting that. But there are other things too that he opened my eyes to, like um, certain things in indigenous cultures, like wampum belts, um, because they keep records, totem poles, because they keep records and tell stories, um, button blankets that I think, um, I think they're north, north coast of British Columbia. I think it's Haida, maybe Clinket. Um, that, please look that up because I don't, I don't want to say that for sure, but I think that's Haida and, and Clinkit um, cultures, you know, those tell, um, they, they tell record, they keep records, they tell about like family um, clans and things like that. From my, from my knowledge, I could be wrong on that, but um, that was my understanding. So there's all these different things that keep records, that tell a story, that tell a history. And but some of the things that we're talking about now at the school, because I'm I'm just learning this, like my my worldview has been blown wide open, and so I'm learning. And then I'm talking with um, the teachers, the staff at the school, and I'm like, oh my goodness, the land is literature. Like you look at this mountain, and there's a story attached to it. There's a name attached to it that has something to do with the cultures here that is sacred, that is informing how we take care of the land that informs, you know, who we are and, and things like that. And, you know, it's been, it's been mind blowing. I'm, like I said, I'm still learning and, and unlearning at the same time. And yeah, it's, it's been really cool. That's awesome. Thank you to Catherine Bellamy for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. And thank you for supporting my podcast. Please like and follow the Librarian Linkover on your favorite podcast app, follow on social media, and visit thelibrarianlinkover.com. Also, thank you for the support of my Substack newsletter, Pondering Leadership. Thank you and welcome to my new subscribers. I am excited that so many people are finding value in my leadership and management experiences. Thank you so much for listening and reading.